In the final weeks of the year, I'm going to do a few more lighthearted stories or non-technical stories that still caught my attention throughout the year anyway. And this one came from Rob Reed's podcast, After On. Rob Reed is an author who I enjoy, even though I haven't read a lot of his stuff. I just generally enjoy the way that he thinks about technology and speculative fiction, and then also applies his natural curiosity into hard science topics like octopus intelligence. So here he is talking about colorblind camouflage, and those of you who know me a little bit longer might know that the cuttlefish is my favorite animal, and so this goes into a little bit about why they're so mystifying and how little we actually know about animal vision. I know you're not crazy about the term umwelt, but that's kind of a nice one-word, two-syllable shorthand for the sensory ranges of creatures. Do you mind giving us sort of a pocket definition of what an umwelt is? Well, I think your definition was pretty good. Umwelt, umwelt gives you the idea of what is the sensory arsenal that any individual animal has, hearing, taste, touch, vision. That's very different with every type of animal, and it's also very different sometimes even between males and females of the same species. And so you can't take for granted that all these animals out there are responding to the light and the sounds on this planet the same way, because they aren't. Your dog, your pet, has a phenomenal sense of smell. Dogs can smell thousands of times more types of odors and fine detail than a human can. So a dog is very much a smelling animal, <laughs> and, and their behavior is influenced greatly by what they could smell, and those are all those things that you and I don't even detect. So in the context of ecology, if we are really going to understand how environments work and how animals interact, we must know the sensory capabilities of those animals. Most folks who are doing this are not thinking about the different sensory apparatus of what these animals can perceive, and to explain and understand their behavior accordingly. Humans tend to put things too often into the human context of how we perceive the world. And so, for example, we think we have great vision, and we do have pretty good vision. We have good visual acuity. Our color perception seems to be really good. We have three color receptors in our eyes, RGB, red, green, and blue. There are 300 colors in the visible range, technically, from 400 to 700 nanometers, and each one of those nanometer wavelengths is technically a color. So our three receptors, RGB, are tuned to three peaks and can see other things on either side of the slope less and less. But the point I'm trying to make is that a raptor, a bird predator, many of them have four color receptors in their eyes. They're tetrachromats, not trichromats like we are. And hypothetically, that's an exponential scale. They probably see color differentiation far greater than we do with only three color receptors. Plus, their color receptors are probably on different parts of that color scale between 400 and 700. So for example, some of the marine animals that I and my colleagues work on, especially ones that are a little deeper, where the colors tend to be more in the blue side of the color range, short wavelengths. So those red colors that we're so accustomed to, they get attenuated out pretty quickly through water. They vanish. They vanish pretty quickly in, you know, a few tens of meters. But the point is that some of these marine animals have three and four color receptors, and they're all down in the blue region so that they can see levels of blue that we cannot even conceive of. 
there are birds and there are animals like the octopus and its cousins, the squid and cuttlefish, that could see the polarized light that's around them. They can perceive the polarization aspect of light. We're blind to that. So what does that look like? We have this crazy situation that an octopus going out on a coral reef changes its color and pattern for camouflage so quickly. And when humans look at it with our RGB vision, it looks like the color match is really good. But the animals out there we're talking about are making a color match with no color vision because we and others have done the experiments and proved that the octopus is colorblind. Mm. So how do you achieve colorblind camouflage? Ah, uh, don't know. <laughs> and we have been studying this and colleagues around the world have been looking at this and we just can't figure it out. So beautiful camouflage, which certainly has to be effective against many color-rich predators, barracudas and snappers and other animals. Some diving marine birds have very good color vision. Somehow these cephalopods are able to get a pretty decent looking color match in the eyes of those predators, yet they don't have color vision. So they're looking around them and they're taking in that light information and they're somehow producing a color-coordinated pattern. That can fool a very, very high acuity diving predator, a marine diving predator. Yes. So it's intriguing to think that all of these creatures in the deep and also in the wild are inhabiting unique sensory environments with their own limitations in terms of the frequencies that they can perceive, both visually and in terms of hearing. And at some points they overlap, at some points they don't overlap. And that's going to have incredible ramifications for predation, for eluding predators, and so forth. My favorite Umwelt example, have you heard of the stoplight loosejaw fish? And I hope I got that right. No, can't help you. I believe it lives in the mesopelagic zone. It has the photoreceptors in its eyes to actually be able to perceive red light. And somehow it also phosphoresces red light. So it's down there where no red light can penetrate, but it's able to generate red light. And so members of the species can actually communicate with each other in a manner using frequencies that nothing else down there can perceive because there's no reason to evolve to perceive red light at those depths. So it's almost like they have their own encryption channel to communicate with one another. We call that a hidden communication channel. Ah. And many animals have evolved those really? to escape predation. There are good examples of that both on land and sea. It's the evolutionary arms race that is going on all around us every day. And it might be that the predator has the edge for a while because it can see something, but eventually the prey organisms will come up with some other trick that works and more of those individuals will survive. That gets gene encoded and that's how you build up a genetic repertoire. So biologists are very aware of these sorts of things. Could you give me an example of another hidden communication channel? Because the only one I was aware of was this peculiar fish, and it fascinates me to no end. Well, I'll use the one that I know with my animal group. I mentioned earlier that cephalopods can see polarized light, but many of their predators do not have polarization sensitivity. So a cephalopod could be sitting there, this beautiful octopus, which is a soft-bodied hunk of protein. It's the perfect meal in the underwater environment. And these fishes are coming around looking for it. And the idea is that the octopus could stay in that camouflage pattern, not detectable by the predator, but at the same time, they could send out signals from their skin 
that have a polarization signal, and we know they can do this on command. Wow. And so that only a conspecific can see the polarization signal and respond to it. So it, the signaling in the polarization channel is blind to the predator who can't perceive that kind of light. And the octopus would be signaling other octopuses? Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. That's cool. We have some data on that for cuttlefish, for example. The second part that really caught my eye was this description of using bioluminescence for camouflage. Let's say you're a grouper and you're looking for something to eat at night. If you're down in the water and you look straight up, there will be some downwelling light from starlight or moonlight. Right. And you look for silhouettes and you eat the silhouettes. Wow. That's how a lot of those nocturnal animals do this. Well, the prey organisms who live in those environments, they put on ventral bioluminescence, downwelling bioluminescence. Those animals can measure the amount of downwelling light coming from the stars or the moon, and they equal that amount of brightness coming out of their bioluminescence ventrally, and they eliminate their silhouette. That's amazing. And that's camouflage. How sophisticated, yeah? So they mimic a starry night as seen from 100 feet below the water. That's right. Yeah, they blend in with that background so that they look more like the starlight or whatever it is, and therefore you don't see a dark shadow in the shape of a squid, yum yum, by the predator. Right. Now, as I was reading and checking all kinds of resources online and making myself a little bit educated about all this complex apparatus in preparation for this, I was continuously amazed to think this is all under the control of colorblind creatures, of course. But then I read there might be some light-sensing capabilities embedded in the skin of cephalopods. And I believe you personally have done some of the groundbreaking work on this. Well, we stumbled across it. We were trying to understand colorblind camouflage. So we kept studying the eye and see if it had color capability and so forth. And in the end, it didn't. We couldn't find anything. But we said, gosh, the color match is still good. Just we got to look somewhere else. They've got amazing skin. Maybe there's some light-detecting capability in the skin. This is where your colleagues go. Why are you wasting your time with that one? Well, the first thing we did was we looked in the retina of a cuttlefish, and it only has one photoreceptor type. So there's one gene that operates one opsin molecule. Opsin molecules are the ones that are in your retina and mine that take light energy and transduce it into a neural signal. So the gene for the opsin in the cuttlefish was known. So we did a quick and dirty gene search in the skin of a cuttlefish. And amazingly, we got the skin lighting up quite a lot. This was a very crude first step. We then spent five years with some really great postdocs trying to see what might be going on in the skin. Yes, the opsin molecules are there. And we were thinking that those opsin molecules ought to be aggregated into a cell or a tissue and do something with the light and then have a neuron connected to it so it could tell a chromatophore to open or close, for example. That's where the skin might really do something that we could see and measure. And after five years of hard work, we could never demonstrate that. Mm. What we could demonstrate is that there were a lot of opsin molecules in the skin, and not only the opsin molecule itself, but in the retina, you need two or three sister molecules to transduce light. And those molecules were also in the skin, wow. but they were just spread out all over the place, and they weren't organized together to do anything that we can understand. And so we have this mystery where you have the components right there in the skin, but they're not connected in any way that we can see. And a fellow named Todd Oakley in California was working on octopus doing a similar experiment. We were working exclusively on squid and cuttlefish. He did get the octopus skin 
to respond just in one little spot. So it remains a mystery. The engines of light detection are all present there, but we just don't really know what's going on there. That's right. The engines are there, but we can't put the story together. It's well put. And it's frustrating because I'm quite convinced that there's something there. I just think there's a mechanism of light detection or something that going on was really one of the most frustrating research projects we've ever undertaken, to be honest. That's it for the Discovery episode channel of the Swix Mixtape. There is a part I couldn't include here that was pretty fascinating, about 30 minutes in to 44 minutes in about the squid mating process and the giant squid mating process, which I thought was pretty fascinating. And you should check out the full episode in the description below. Otherwise, I'll see you tomorrow.